Good morning. Uh, The sermon today is taken from Colossians 2. Um, So the first 15 verses in Colossians 2, 1 to 15 is, well, chapter 1 was 2. It is Paul's introduction to his warning about false teaching the false teachings that he talks about in verses 16 to 23 of ceremonialism, mysticism, and asceticism. Uh, And Paul's purpose in writing Colossians was to refute these wrong, heretical beliefs that were influencing the Colossian church, and he does this in part, maybe primarily, by emphasizing the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is all, and in all, uh, his work, his work, past and present. Uh, And these verses... I don't mean to scare you here, but these verses speak, I believe, to the proper use of personal and church disciplines. And I will comment on this, the connection as we go along. Um, I should say, too, that it's a very, very difficult chapter. Because it, it talks about, it uses language that we don't usually use, and um, it's somewhat difficult. And I'll try to, I'll try to be very clear. So I want to begin. Uh, you have the outline there. Uh, the purpose. I'll begin with the purpose of Paul's struggle for them. Um, <clears throat> This was introduced in chapter 1 toward the end, his struggle for them, his agonizing for them is the Greek word, Uh, his care for them, his concern for them, his burden for them. So I'm reading from the New King James Version, beginning in verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you, or what great agony I have for you, And those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I feel like I need to pause and say that our dear brother Paul, who wrote this, uh, the language is so... Every phrase has a meaning. Every phrase is full of spiritual content. 
that's, I guess, why I'm reading slowly. <laughs> I'm thinking about what it's saying, and I'm getting bogged down. Okay. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. That's one of those places, persuasive words, and we're like, what in the world is he talking about? For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So then I'm going to pause and I'm just like, what is he talking about? What is this good order that he's talking about? As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you. Uh, King James says, spoil you through philosophy and empty deceit. What are they? According to the tradition of men, what is that? According to the basic principles of the world, what is that? And not according to Christ. For in Him dwells, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily in His fleshly body. And you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. What's he referring to? In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. That is, something done by the Spirit in the heart. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. What is that? By the circumcision of Christ. How does that happen? Buried with him. In baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made a life together with him. Being forgiven, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, what are they, that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Um, there are so many phrases here and words that uh, sometimes passages like this I feel like we can't get there from here it's so so much so I want to start here with um just take the verses as they come. The first three verses I am calling the purpose of Paul's struggle for them. Um, 
He says he wants them to know that he is in a great struggle, great agony on their behalf. Uh, verse 29, 129 talks about the need to agonize in the energy of God in order to warn, admonish, and instruct God's people. And so he carries on that thought here when, when he says that, that he struggles for them so that he can encourage their hearts as they are knit together in love. So to comfort or encourage means to call to one side. That's the meaning of the word, the Greek word. Uh, actually, the root of the word is parakleia, which is the word for the Holy Spirit. To call to one side to give aid by comforting, encouraging, exhorting someone. And this is done... Uh, in the context of loving relationship as they are knit together in love, in close fellowship. So the value of this exhorting, encouraging, comforting, the value of it is in direct proportion to the knitting together in love. And knit together means welded in genuine unity. And it is in the unity of love that people are best encouraged and exhorted. I suppose we all know this. And this is, I believe, Christ and Paul's way to disciple people, is to draw them into a knit together in love relationship and then speak within that the truth. So the right to warn and encourage and comfort springs out of a relationship of love. So the, pur the second purpose of Paul's struggle for them is to help them experience abounding riches, full assurance of understanding. Abounding riches of full assurance of understanding. Um, so the result of this comforting, encouraging, and warning in love is the attainment of assurance of spiritual understanding. Um, so discipleship, encouraging, and warning that takes place in the context of united hearts produces, first of all, full assurance of confidence of understanding. So our goal, the goal of the church, our goal with one another, is to help people gain assurance that their understanding of Jesus Christ, of Scripture, of God's will is correct. Help them understand what it is and that they are in it that they have assurance that they are in it and can live in assurance. Now, um, this, this is a whole big, I don't know what word to use, um, challenge, uh, booby trap maybe, uh, issue because 
uh, people need help to recognize that they are sinning. They do. I do. You do. We all sin. None of us is perfectly perfected. So we need help to understand if we are sinning, if indeed we are. But uh, it doesn't help. They don't need to be shamed and attacked because, because, well, for, because it's wrong, but also because it undermines. They need help to understand what God wants and to enter into it with assurance. Um, they need help to gain assurance of God's will and that they are in it. And this is, this is what produces healthy Christians who walk according to that word that's used here, the order of Christ. Now, the second purpose, a wealth of spiritual insight and discernment or understanding. He's struggling for them so that they can gain spiritual insight and discernment of understanding, which he says is a wealth of this. All right? So we gain spiritual insight as we communicate, as Paul is saying, as we communicate, as we engage in encouraging and warning, we gain spiritual insight. And this is referred as an understanding that we gain. And the idea of uh, knowing and understanding here is uh, to sit together and to compare ideas and come to an understanding. Uh, this is like a penetrating conversation, uh, consideration of ideas that precedes coming to a conclusion, taking action based on, well, this is true, it's what I need to do. So we gain understanding through the process of comparing ideas, sitting together, coming together, uh, by comparing ideas one with another and engaging one another in, yes, even in conflicting ideas. So, the way this relates to our conversations and discipline review is, uh, I'll just say, this is the process that I am trying to encourage uh, in our conversations with each other about discipline because I feel like we have to hear each other and understand each other and uh, perhaps it, it will help me bear with me <laughs> perhaps it will help me back up a little bit on my strong commitment to my point of view because I heard what someone else had to say and saw the value of what they said, and perhaps it would help someone else uh, give up a little bit on their commitment to their thing. And uh, together, uh, we can find ourselves closer to uh, the same place. This is the idea that Paul is giving here. We gain understanding through the process of comparing ideas. Uh, 
So the word translated understanding has the idea of having prudence or discernment in distinguishing between good and bad, better and best, true and false. And this comes about through a careful examination of the matter at hand by those who are united in love. That is what Paul is saying. The third purpose of Paul's struggle for them is to help them become intimately, intimately acquainted with the mystery of Christ, who possesses all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Um, so this refers to knowledge gained through relationship. This, this is, there are several words uh, that, speak, that talk about knowing something, and this word is knowing through relationship, through participation with that which is known, or through experience and observation, through the application and practice of the truth known, as opposed to head knowledge or speculation or simply reasoning, which which is what is meant by persuasive arguments of men. You see what he's doing here. He's saying, well, these false teachings are rooted in human reasonings of men, and they're not rooted in an intimate relationship with Christ. Uh, they are not rooted in uh, relating with Christ or the Word or others, it's all human reasoning. So, uh, here's something I think about. Knowledge gained through reasoning is less compelling than knowledge gained through relationship and conversation. And I, I'm pretty much convinced that it is impossible to come to deeply held beliefs without loving attachment with Jesus and others. I'm, I'm pretty convinced of that. And I think, um, I think too much, too much of, um, too much of religious conversation is um, in the head and it's designed to win an argument and to be right and to prove that everyone else is wrong, and to maintain my position, and I'm not accusing anybody here of anything. I'm just saying this is too much how it can be. And um, this, this, what I'm saying here applies also to raising children. Uh, you cannot raise children to believe what you believe. I don't care how right it is or biblical. If they are not intimately attached with you and love you and trust you, and I think this is true in the church too, We have this kind of knowledge of Christ because of our relationship with him. And Paul's point is that the Colossian era is rooted in intellectual speculation. 
whereas the revelation of the mystery of God in Christ cannot be known apart from relationship with Christ and relationship with God's people, the cultivation of brotherly love and discussion within the community of faith. This is how people learn best. The word treasure in verse 3 is literally storehouse or treasury or vault, a place where something that is precious is kept for safety. And, and Paul is saying here that Christ is the treasury of wisdom. It resides in him. These, those precious and priceless gems are found in Jesus Christ. So the words wisdom and knowledge are very similar, but they have different meanings. I'll just mention this. The word knowledge uh, means to see into something, have knowledge of it, know something, understand it. And wisdom has the idea of applying it, putting it into practice in one's life. But what are the benefits of growing in the knowledge of Christ? And I believe Paul gives four here. Uh, the first benefit of increasing our knowledge of Christ is that we will be less likely to be led astray by um, doctrinal error, or we will be, we will not be deluded by persuasive arguments. Verse four. So uh, the idea of beguile in the King James is deceive or delude, and the enticing words. The, the persuasive, it means enticing, uh, false arguments. Uh, so do not be deluded by false reasoning and persuasive arguments. This kind of reasoning attempts to simplify what is obscure, unravel what is intricate, Reconcile involved in difficult discrepancies and bring to the level of human reason that which is above and beyond human reason. Um, okay. I think some things in uh, some things, doctrinal things like the Trinity, for example. Some things the Bible states as true that it does not give a rational explanation for how. And, and so I'm like a lot of people who think about things. So then we get into this thing of trying to figure this out, and we, we start here with a Bible verse, and we reason about it, and then we get to this, and we say, therefore... And then we go from therefore to another round of reasoning about it, and we end up over here, therefore. And then we go again, and then we end up over here, which is a long ways from where we started. But where we end up, we're very sure, therefore, that that is exactly what the Bible teaches. And I don't know if it is or not. And I'm, I don't, well, I do. I can say I don't have anything in mind, but I do have something in mind. Things like eschatology. 
premillennial, amillennial, that other one, postmillennial. And I don't doubt that some of the ideas there are wrong and false and sin, whatever. I don't know exactly. Uh, some of them might be true, but it's just a lot of reasoning. This is the type of thing uh, that we do in an attempt to understand. Uh, attempt to make things that we don't know the answer to have an answer. And it's hard to live in mystery. It's hard to live in I don't know. It's like we feel great pressure to nail everything down. I like to do that too. And I like to be right about it. We all do. The second benefit, uh, growing in our knowledge of Christ will contribute to us having an orderly walk worthy of Christ. Now, order is a term meaning to arrange, draw up in order. Uh, it's, used, it's used in history of the training of priests. And even today, the Catholics refer to the different groups as the orders. And it's this idea. Order is the opposite of confusion. That is, it's this discipline and structure that expresses the Christian walk. This knowledge of Christ will give our life order and strengthen our character. And Paul delighted, he said, in their orderly walk and wanted them to continue in it. He wants them to continue walking in faith according to the tradition they had received of Christ and not follow the tradition of men. Okay, now, now we can have a grand discussion about the value of tradition. And what kind of tradition is bad and what kind is good? So deep attachment with Jesus and deeply held beliefs that are rooted in Jesus Christ result in an orderly tradition, an orderly walk. That's what Paul is saying. The third benefit to increasing our knowledge of Christ is that we will find ourselves overflowing with gratitude, verse 7. And this is not simply gratitude for God's blessings in general. It's Gratitude for Jesus, who blesses us. And it comes, this gratitude comes from recognizing the riches of the glory of Christ or in Christ. And as we gain an appreciation for who Christ is and what he's done for us, our natural response should be to overflow with gratitude. So we come to know Christ better and we become more and more grateful for who he is, what he's doing. So the fourth benefit of increasing in our knowledge of Christ is that it protects against indeed very difficult phrases. Philosophies of men, traditions, tradition of men, and the rudiments of the world. And this is probably uh, the most difficult verse in this chapter. So the warning, let no one spoil or cheat you, 
through philosophy and vain deceit, uh, spoil you, cheat you, has the idea of carrying you off as booty, like there's a battle and you get captured and are carried away as, see, you, you are what I gained in the battle. I gained you. You're mine now. Uh, this was not a captivity of lawlessness. It, it was bondage to the reasoning traditions and regulatory systems of men. So what are these? So philosophy, I believe, refers to religious ideas that are rooted in the reasonings of men that have no foundation in the scriptural tradition of Christ. And I'm sorry, I know I am saying a lot of things here and they're rather technical and probably kind of heavy. Okay, philosophy refers to religious ideas that are rooted in the reasonings of men that have no foundation in the scriptural tradition of Christ. Now, here's the problem, the difficulty. The difficulty with any discussion about this subject, about what is human reasoning that's rooted in the Bible and human reasoning that's not, is that everyone reasons about the faith. Everybody. You do. I don't care... I don't care how much you know, how much you've read, you think about what you believe, why you believe, whatever. <clears throat> I mean, the problem is not a single one in this room can stop thinking. You can't stop thinking. You might wish you could, you might try to, but you'll think about not thinking. All right, the issue is not whether we re reason about the faith. The issue is whether we think about, reason about the faith tradition revealed in the Scripture, or whether we reason about the reasonings of men. And I don't know always how you distinguish between these. I'm just trying to present. I think this is what this is saying. This human re reasoning philosophy is vain deceit, Paul says, or empty illusion. It's based on man's reasoning and has no foundation in the scriptural tradition of Christ, and it cannot produce an orderly walk. Tradition of men refers to the oral tradition, I believe, the oral traditions of the Jews that were added to the written law. And uh, according to Jesus, these traditions even undermine the principles of the gospel. And I don't know exactly why, perhaps because of how they were used. Uh, let's see, in some examples Christ gives, uh, he says that the way they use their oral tradition, it actually violates the intent of the Old Testament instruction. So maybe, maybe that's it, but, uh, that they had evil in their hearts, even as they uh, tried to maintain doing what God wanted based on all the additions to what the, what the law said. But that needs more discussion. I'm, I'm not an authority here, I'm saying think that's what it means. Rudiments of the world 
elements of the world is the idea, refers to elementary laws such as Old Testament laws that regulated Jewish life or the laws of God that ruled the lives of pagans. <clears throat> I'm not sure how all of this needs to be applied. I'm trying to. <laughs> so you'll understand. Okay, the alternative to deception through the reasonings, traditions, and regulatory systems of men is given in verses 6, 7, 9, and 10. And I'm summarizing. It is to walk according to the tradition of Jesus Christ, the Lord, that you have received. Live the truth he taught and expressed in his actions. So Christ taught and lived the truth, not the reasonings of men. Be rooted and built up in him as you have been taught. Verse 7, Christ is the answer. Because in him dwells the fullness of God. So the very character and person of God is expressed in the person, life, and teachings of Christ. This is the tradition of Christ. And believers are in vital union with Christ in such a way that every spiritual need is met in Christ. Believers do not need the philosophies of, philosophies of men, the rituals rudiments of the world, whatever all that is. That's what Paul says. Christ is the answer because Christ is the head of all principality and power. Verse 10. I think that is the idea that Christ is sovereign over the entire spirit world. Uh, include, including the devil and his helpers. Christ has ultimate power. Whatever powers there are in the universe, whatever ranks and orders of authority and government, whatever this is, Christ is head over all this. In the end, he will be. And Christ is the answer because Christ circumcises our heart. Uh, this circumcision is a supernatural, not a human action. It's something that happens inside of us, and it results in, involves, uh, Paul says, a putting off of the sins, let's see, the sins of the flesh, the body of the sins of the flesh. And that's another phrase, very difficult. Um... He circumcises our heart. And the putting off means to strip off, as you would uh, to take off dirty clothes and cast them aside. And the body of the sins of the flesh, I think, is referring to the former self that we were before we were circumcised, before we became a believer, whatever that was. That has been put off by this circumcision of the heart that Christ does. All that was rooted in our former life, that was rooted in and geared towards self will, selfishness, uh, not only the uh, roots of sin, but the expressions of them. Okay, this is saying that our whole 
walk, our whole who we were, and the way we live. All of that is stripped off in conversion. Okay. And if I'd be you, I'd be raising my hand. If this was a class, I'd be like, okay, stop right there. All right? We all know that what Paul describes here is not something that happens immediately, some of it. And it is totally accomplished, perfected in the moment of conversion. We know this is true. The Bible even speaks about this as true, that there is a process of growth that goes on after conversion. But this this is this is what Paul is talking about in circumcision of the heart, that it has this effect and it results in an orderly, orderly walk. So Christ is the answer, the fourth one, because Christ's death and resurrection frees us from the handwriting. And I must hurry. I think this handwriting refers to, because it was nailed to the cross, and I believe it refers to whatever, whatever condemns people, judges people, condemns people, whatever um, holds them accountable to and guilty of. And this could be sins we've committed, and it could be things like, it, it, some of this is about the Old Testament law, that it was nailed to the cross. And our guilt for our sins was nailed to the cross with Christ. And so with faith in Him, we can be forgiven of these things, As we die and are raised with Christ, according to Romans 6, 1 to 6, this is the same idea. Uh, we are freed from um, guilt uh, for trespasses and uh, it's like the judgment against us has been removed. And then verse 14 describes how forgiveness is secured for us. It's through blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us by nailing it to the cross. And then verse 15 says that Christ can quicken us, forgive us, defeat the devil and the powers of evil, including religious systems. Christ has stripped spoiled the weapons from the evil powers and authorities. Christ has blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Christ frees us from the need to try to gain salvation by keeping uh, the law or law code that promises salvation by keeping it. Okay, if you're like me, you have many questions by now. So I'm going to give a little summary. Faith in Christ produces a tradition, a culture, an order, a walk that is pleasing to God. I'll 
still need to say, I'm not saved. I'm not saying that you and I have the ability to nail this down as to what exactly the best, the right, the only way this can look for it to be of Christ. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that faith in Christ and unity of love discussions can produce, has the ability to produce a tradition, a culture, an order, a walk that is pleasing to God. And it doesn't have to be perfect to be helpful and pleasing to God. It is obvious, I believe, that Paul is saying that the orphan or oral tradition of the Jews falls into the category of philosophies of men. I think that's what he's saying. Falls into the category of human reasoning and is not rooted in the work, life, teaching, death, resurrection, and tradition of Christ. So here is the tension. On the one hand, there is a tradition, culture, order, walk that is rooted in the death and resurrection of Christ and in the commands, principles, and applications of Scripture. And on the other hand, there are traditions of men that are rooted in human reasoning and human tradition and not directly in Scripture. And the challenge here is that almost all applications of Scripture require some human reason. That doesn't make them wrong. But it is easy, I believe, to become guilty of what Paul is condemning here, to depend on human reasoning and not on the work of Christ for and in us. And that's all the notes I have. And I realized at the end this morning that I need to say more, but I don't have more written down. I should say something that gives all of us great hope and uh, solves all the questions. And I don't have it. But I do believe, I do believe that, that when, I think what Paul is saying is that when we, when we are in um, committed relationship with one another and we talk about what it means to walk um, orderly in the tradition of Christ, I believe in that kind of spirit-led discussion, we can come to um, a helpful conclusion about what, what the Bible is teaching and how to live. And uh, that is my goal. It's my hope for us that we can do that. Okay? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your presence here in our midst in our hearts, and I pray that you would use 
your word to speak to us and clarify further what you mean by what you said. Lead us by your spirit, not only here in the service, but in our conversations together for your honor and glory and for the building up of your people uh, and for the purpose of us living uh, in the tradition of Christ. Bless us each one. Make us a blessing. Thank you. Amen.